الحمد لله الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Respected brothers and sisters, Jazakumullah khairun for coming to this program. The reason I say this is because it's not going to be a normal lecture, a normal bayan by which we become inspired and elevates our iman. This is supposed to be more of an intensive study of one of the most, in fact, the most important science of Islam, one of the most important disciplines which is called Islamic theology, aqidah, the Islamic belief system. The Creed of Islam by Imam Tahawi. We're studying a subject which is the most important. A subject which if we have a misunderstanding about, depending on the level of misunderstanding and the seriousness of the issue, it could take us out of our faith. So it doesn't just lead to transgression or unrighteousness, but it actually leads to disbelief. So it's a very, very critical, a very, very necessary science. There's going to be many issues that you will come across while we go through the course of this study, which if you've heard for the first time, it's going to take a while to sink in and digest. I'd just like to warn you ahead of time. There are a number of discussions that are going to take place that normally don't take place on the pulpits or in the masajid or in common discussion. For some of you who may have had a course of study in Aqidah before and covered some of those aspects, inshallah, hopefully this will be a reiteration of that or further clarification of that, inshallah. But for those who are hearing some of this stuff for the first time, it's going to be complicated. And I've had people who have come to me after and said, I haven't understood that point clearly yet. They're just actually very complex points. And I remember when I heard them for the first time, it took a while for them to sink in. Like when you talk about the relationship, we'll cover this afterwards, when you talk about the relationship between the eternal speech of Allah, the kalamullah, the eternal speech of Allah, and the book that we have in front of us, which comprises the Qur'an. There's a special relationship between the two. But we never think of that, we never speak about that. It's not something to discuss every day anyway. Alright, as long as our beliefs are correct about that. But when you hear it for the first time, it takes a while for it to sink in then for us to get a better understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because we're speaking about an entity, an essence, that is inconceivable for us. So the only way we can actually understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is by whatever He's revealed about Himself. We have the few limited verses, texts from the sources of Sharia, from the Qur'an, from the Sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to go on. That gives us a picture Sufficient for us to believe in Him, to recognize Him, to love Him, to take up the path to Him and get closer to Him so that in the hereafter we will be from among the blessed ones and not the doomed or the wretched ones or the ashqiya, but rather from the su'ada. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from among those. And that's the purpose of this study. The purpose of this study is not dialectics. The purpose of this study is not just the discussion of intricacies or the subtle points of the Sharia. But the idea of it is to further refine our understanding 
of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our purpose in this world, what's required for us, where we came from and where we're going to. And then to make our ultimate abode the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our ultimate goal, pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the ultimate abode, paradise, Jannatul Firdaus. And may Allah grant us the tawfiq, the divine guidance to realize that goal and make this course, make this course and our presence here, all of us together coming here in this masjid to study this topic on this Saturday and Sunday, away from everything else. May Allah make this a means of our being blessed in this world and in the hereafter and our getting tawfiq to do good works in our life. So a few things I'd like to discuss before we actually start the book. Number one, I'm going to talk about the formation and the development of this science, of this topic, of this science, of this discipline, of this study, as a science actually. You know, because in the time of the Prophet there was no need for any kind of complex and in-depth, detailed discussion of the various points that we're talking about. The Sahaba were such people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had put around the Prophet They would be presented with Surah Al-Ikhlas, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ And that would be sufficient to elevate them, to get them to develop a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It would just penetrate their heart, hearts. Their hearts were so clean and so simple that this message would penetrate them and illuminate their heart in such a way that they would become so firm believers that we hear st- t- stories today from the likes of Bilal radiallahu an and others who despite being in the faith for just a short while were able to show such great perseverance and steadfastness in the face of great opposition and persecution and the worst of tyranny that could happen to them. That was just an amazing thing. They didn't have to even take the concession of saying, okay, fine, I don't believe anymore. When a person is under duress, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows it. They didn't even take that. Still, in those moments of severe pain, they would still say, ahad, ahad, the one, the one. I mean, that's the level of iman, despite not having gone through all of these intricate topics that developed later on. Now, why did these topics develop later on if they were not available during the time of the Prophet ﷺ? Well, that's quite simple. Islam, beyond its core fundamentals, in terms of expanding and explaining and remaining relevant, there's a progress, there's a development that takes place where any new issues that come up, they're normally responded to, they're explained. And the sources of Sharia that we have, the verses from the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet they, they are then taken as the source to respond to these issues and to clarify issues for the people. Now Islam spread beyond the Jaziratul Arab, beyond the Arabian Peninsula. It went into the lands of the Persians who had beliefs. Many of the Persians who became Muslim, who embraced Islam, some of them came with these preconceived ideas from previous religions, previous ideas, previous ideologies that they held. When you went into the Sham, you took over areas that were once dominated by Christianity and by other religions. There were pagan ideas that were in different parts of the world. There were different beliefs in different parts of the world. These people came into Islam. The scholars in addressing 
the questions that would arise from, from, from such problems, from such people, from their preconceived ideas, in order to clarify things, these things develop further. So in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it's very simple. La ilaha illallah would be just very strong. You know, like today, if you've ever had any experience with a person who's interested in Islam, there's some people who are very simple. They ask about Islam, you tell them some of the beautiful aspects about Islam, and they're willing to, they're willing to accept the religion, and then they become very, very strong Muslims. There's other people that I've come across. For example, there was one individual who was at the local university in Santa Barbara where I was. He came for every single Jumu'ah khutbah, for every single tafsir class that we had, and for any other classes that we held, he came for every single one of them for about eight and a half to nine and a half months. He was more regular, and I'm not saying this as an exaggeration just to make a point. This is serious. He was more regular than anybody else in the community, any other Muslim in the community. He had not yet embraced Islam. He came in for every single class, and he wasn't a spy as well, right? Just to clarify. He was a serious student asking questions. He had a lot of confusion about theology and about some Catholic beliefs and so on. He was from a mixed marriage. We never pushed him. We never said, you know, just say La ilaha illallah. Because the idea is not to get everybody to say La ilaha illallah and then there's no follow-up. These people have really no idea what they're really entering into. Seriously, you know, matters that concern them. They have no ideas about them. There's no clarification. It was one day at Asr time or something like that. And I don't think I was even home. He came and knocked on my door. I want to embrace the faith now. He asked all the questions that he wanted. And then he became a Muslim. After nine and a half months or so. MashaAllah, after that, he had to go through a lot of difficulties because of family, etc., etc. But he persevered very strongly. So there's different types of people. There's different types of people, but in general at that time, it was very simple. There was still a tribal mentality where when the Amir, when the leader of a tribe became Muslim or took on some ideology, times the entire people and his entire tribe would follow. I mean, that's what was suggested and advised to Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu when he started teaching in Medina, Munawwara, sent by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He had a few converts and then there was a few people, there were a few people who started to complain about his activities. Somebody advised him that, I'd suggest that you go and speak to the leader of the main tribe there, Sa'ad radiallahu anhu. He went and spoke to him, he converted, and he says that within a few days the entire tribe had converted. So people were not as individualistic. Today there's a, you know, there's a problem of individualism, where a person doesn't even know his neighbor, who they are. We're so into our own world because we feel this false sense of security with the money or with the credit cards that we have, and the ability that we think we have on our own where we don't really need anybody else's help. It's become a lot more complex world. Today you don't really see children holding the same perspectives as their parents. Yet that was the case before where you saw somebody and you could tell this new youth that was just growing up, you could see exactly which direction he was going to go because his family had gone in that direction. You know, because there was a certain trait that they had or there was a certain trend that they had or a certain occupation that they had. No longer the case. It's no longer the case. It's becoming a lot more complex. People are going out there and they're studying various different disciplines. In fact, uh, the importance of this study can be understood from the fact that there are so many young people today in intellectual trauma. They don't really know what to believe. They have really no idea what's correct and what's not correct. Because what's going on is that the majority of Muslims today, they only assimilate 
growing up in a Muslim house, they only assimilate the real basics that are taught at home by the parents. You know, like make salat, fast during the month of Ramadan, you know, like namaz for all, roza rako. Allah is one. There's certain other basic beliefs, but in terms of a more complex understanding to deal with some of the questions that arise out there, some of the problems that are outside, it's very difficult. That's not understood by the common you know, youth growing up in this society, especially in the West. Then they go to university. Even if you're not taking a course on philosophy or any discipline that relates to that, there's going to be philosophies that will be assimilated, that will be propagated in the class, because they're part of the system. You know, because Western civilization is primarily based on the Greek system or the Greek philosophy. A lot of these concepts have filtered through, including some of the modern philosophies like psychoanalysis and you know, evolution, etc., etc. These things are rampant. These things are all around us. You hear about them, you discuss them. We have no idea about how to deal with them though. So what happens is that when a person gets into that environment, they sometimes come out without not really knowing, unless they're very closely associated to ulama, and they're willing to ask the right questions, and they get the right answers. They get the right guidance. It's an intellectual trauma. I've seen people lose their faith. Not necessarily people from families who are not very religious. I'm talking about from religious families. One particular family who came about two and a half hours to come and you know, bring their daughter to speak to me, the family was such that they had actually moved from another country back to England just so they could put their children in Islamic school for a number of years. They really did a lot. And now this girl doesn't want to believe in Islam. She's got some major questions. There was another guy very similar to that whose brothers are becoming hafiz of the Quran. So there's a lot of intellectual trauma. That's why it's very important nowadays for those who are curious about this subject, who have curiosity in their mind, who are inclined to thinking. You know, there's two types of people. There's more than two types of people. But one is the person who is going to play his football all day, who's going to watch football every match that comes on, and that's all they're worried about. They don't really think about what's going on in the dunya. They're not really concerned about the intricate aspects of how to think about certain things. All they're worried about is you know, this form of uh, the sport and pastime and pleasure. You've got the other person who doesn't want to engage in that kind of a thing, but wants to engage more in thought, likes to read, likes to ponder and think, likes to discuss things, you know, talk about topics that are going on. They concern that person. Both of these people have some critical points in their life. The one is wasting a lot of time, right? The other one is not wasting time in that regard, but then has this propensity or has this possibility rather to actually fall into intellectual problems. You know, problems that relate to thought, philosophy, idea. What should I think about this? That's why an advanced understanding of Islamic Aqidah is very necessary today. It's not necessarily for everybody. Some people who things like this won't appeal to them. And that's absolutely fine. As long as the iman is firm, then that's fine. Ghazali's got a whole chapter about this in his Ihya'urumiddin that talks about the majority of the inhabitants of paradise, those who will more easily get into paradise will be the bala. The bala are those people who are just simple, simple people. You know, they're not very complex. They're not asking too many complex questions. For them, the footprints in the desert, the droppings of an animal, 
just as those indicate where those came from, the universe around them just pondering over that indicates that there's a creator and they have firm belief in that. You know, for instance, there's this older woman in one of the old Islamic cities and she sees this whole commotion going on. There's a large group of people surrounding a person. She says, what's going on? He said that, don't you know, Razi, Allama Razi, Fakhruddin al-Razi is actually visiting the city. And these are all the people who have come to welcome him and to hear him. What's so good about this person? He has about a hundred proofs. He can provide about a hundred evidences for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the woman is saying, why do I need all of that? For me, I already have firm yaqeen. I don't need a hundred proofs to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imam al-Haramain Abdul Malik al-Juwayni, after great discussion, I mean he was one of the greatest theologians, greatest mutakallimeen of the Ash'ari school, a very great Shafi'i scholar, but a scholar also of the Aqidah of Islamic theology. Before he died, he said, I am dying with the belief or on the belief of the old women of Naysabur. Trying to say that that's all I really need to gain success. All of these complexities are not necessary. Obviously, you have to put that in perspective. You have to take that in its context. But what I'm saying is that nowadays, there are a lot of these complex theories outside. And it becomes very necessary for those who are interested, curious, who these things inspire to study or make them more curious to research these things. An advanced understanding of Islamic Aqidah is extremely necessary. Otherwise person goes into intellectual trauma or loses their faith completely. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects us from this. Going back to the development, in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa it was very simple. Later on, some of the Abbasid Khalifs, Ma'mun al-Rashid, they established a center where they began to translate, import and translate works from the Greeks, Hellenistic philosophy, works of Aristotle and others, into Arabic. In fact, according to many research scholars today, much of the works of Aristotle and, the other, and some of the other famous Greek philosophers that we have today available in English, even in Greek, they actually come from the Arabic. Because the Greeks hid their works. The Muslims paid large sums of money to acquire these works and to translate them. And they preserved them. You know, it was this group of Muslims that did that. The harm that was created by this was that many Muslims of that time took these ideas on. This Hellenistic rationalism, Hellenistic logic, this way of thinking about the world. And different from those Muslims who took on philosophy wholeheartedly, these people, they said, we're going to amalgamate, we're going to combine between the beneficial points of Hellenistic philosophy and of Islam, and we're going to put that together because we think Islam needs that infusion. That's where many problems were created. Now there were many other deviant groups and sectarians, people who had all these various different ideologies. The Mu'tazila, who were these rationalists as such, they were the strongest and they did the most damage at the time because they managed to get the leaders to adopt their way. Ma'mun al-Rashid, Harun al-Rashid's son, who was the Khalifa after his father as well, he took this wholeheartedly and began a campaign of persecution, of converting all of the ulama of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, all of the ulama of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah to this way of thinking. Among the many ideas that they had, which I'm going to 
explain some of them to you just so that you understand how deviant ideologies these could be. The most important one that they really, really emphasized on and would be used as a criterion to determine whether somebody is of correct belief according to them or deviant according to them was the issue of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now I'm just going to allude to this, we'll deal with it in more detail later on, but their emphasis or their insistence was on that the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is created. Whereas the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the belief is that in it Allah's speech is uncreated because it's an attribute of His. His attributes are eternal. Just as Allah doesn't have a beginning, His attributes don't have a beginning. They're beginningless, just as He is beginningless. They are also eternal, just as He is eternal. They said, no, the speech is created. Created means that it's not eternal, it has a beginning. We're all created beings. Okay, we are all created beings. We're not eternal beings. There was a time when we were in unexistence. Allah decided that we come into existence, and thus we are existent today. So we're contingent beings. We are not eternal, but we're created beings, and there comes an end as well to us. Likewise, they say that the speech of Allah is like that as well. They say the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like that as well. They would go and ask everybody. Some of the scholars would adopt that idea externally just so that they could be saved from the persecutions. There were many other ulama who held out. Some were imprisoned. Many were imprisoned. Some were killed. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who is the most famous, most popular personality that comes up at this time, was one of the final frontiers of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, one of the greatest of their scholars. Rahimahullah, may Allah have mercy on him. He stood out against this, even in the face of flogging. Throughout Ma'mun's period, throughout Ma'mun al-Rashid's period, throughout his brother Ma'tasim Billah's period, where he was flogged. And then after him came another of their brothers who was also a Mu'taziri. Finally, after the third one, there was Mutawakkil Billah, who was on the belief of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, who acted very favorably to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. In fact, so favorably, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would say that this is a greater fitna for me. You know, trying to deal with all the gifts that he's given me and all the hospitality. The others, I was able to just deal with the persecution. That was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal who was flogged until he fell unconscious. And some say they also trampled on him. Right? This was all in trying to reaffirm the correct faith. For Imam Ahmad, it was to reaffirm the correct faith of the Muslims that the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal. Now if that's made you curious, inshallah, just wait until that section. We'll talk about that in detail. But these were some of the questions that they brought up, which were peripheral issues. They were not issues that had to be discussed at that length. And that's why this subject has been called Ilmul Kalam. In Arabic, it's called Ilmul Kalam. Right? Kalam just means a discourse, speech. So some say that this whole subject has been called Ilmul Kalam based on one of the most debated and discussed issues in it, which was the issue of the speech of Allah. That's one opinion. There's other opinions as to why this is called Ilmul Kalam. But we'll call it theology, speculative theology, uh, polemics. There's a good side to it and a bad side to it, which I'll speak about later. Some of the beliefs of the Mu'tazila, just to give you an understanding of how far this rationalism took them, they said that it was necessary for Allah to reward the 
pious person for the good deeds that they do, and it was necessary for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to punish the person who sinned. Necessary for Allah. Our belief, the belief of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, is that all of this is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If He wants to reward the person who does good, He will reward him. And the thing is that He will because He makes that promise, Allah does not go against His promise. But not because it's necessary on Him, but because Allah wants to do that. Now that's quite straightforward. But when you get to the other side about a sinning believer, a believer who sins and transgresses, what about that person? For that person, the Mu'tazila said that he has to be punished according to the amount of sins that he's committed. The Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah say, no, it's up to Allah. Allah has all the right to punish this person for what he's done out of his justice, because that's a just way of doing things. But if he wants, he can completely forgive him. And you hear stories about that. You know, you hear narrations about that, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive certain people who have done so many sins. So you see, the opinion of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah does not obligate on Allah anything. Allah can do as He wishes, as He mentions. Whereas the Mu'tazila, they put Allah into the system and they restrict Him. Another thing that they believe is that it's necessary for Allah to do what's best for the human being. To act in the best interest of the human being. The Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah says that Allah is the most loving and Allah does act in the best interest of the human beings, but a lot of the time, we don't understand that. We don't project what's good or bad to Allah, or on Allah. The Mu'tazilis, they say, that whatever the humans think to be good, Allah has to think that thing to be good as well. Whatever the human being think as bad and ugly, Allah has to deem that thing ugly as well. So it's like the other way around. Whereas the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who dictates what's good and what's bad. And we have to accept that sometimes our minds and our intellect does not comprehend the beauty in a thing. Sometimes it does later on, sometimes it doesn't. But we have to think that whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does, and our belief is that whatever He does is out of His wisdom and there's a wise purpose behind it. Now you can understand how aql and intellect is given such a high position with the Mu'tazilis. Now just going off that to some of the other groups that were around. Another one was the Kharijis, the Khawarij, the Siseeders. These were a group of these overly pious, pietist people who had certain ideas and then would try to implement them on everybody else who have extreme understandings of things. For example, going back to the Mu'tazili, they said that if a believer, a person who considers himself a believer in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger, if that person commits a sin, a major sin, zina, stealing, whatever, and doesn't make tawbah, the Mu'tazili said that this person is in hell, in a special position in hell, he's not in paradise, and he's not a believer anymore, but he's not an unbeliever either. He's in between the two. If that's the first time you're hearing this, it's very strange, but there were people who believed that. He's neither a believer nor an unbeliever. He's in between the two. They call this manzila bain al-manzilatayn. Uh, intermediate realm, a realm between two realms. Right? This kind of middle hybrid kind of path. It's not even a hybrid actually, it's just in the middle. This is also one of the main themes of the five fundamentals they believe in. The Khawarij, 
They say that if a believer commits a major sin, he becomes a kafir. And he goes to hell. So action according to the khawarij is part of the definition of iman. The Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah say no. Iman is in the heart. If a person sins, that's a weakness. That doesn't make a person a kafir. It makes him deserving of punishment if Allah so wills. But it doesn't make him a kafir. Kufr is only when a person gives up their faith and takes on something else or does something that denotes that. That's a khawarij. They did many things. I mean, they're the ones who went after Muawiyah radiallahu an, Amr ibn As radiallahu an, and Ali radiallahu an. They succeeded in assassinating Ali radiallahu an and did not succeed with the others. And they had obviously many other ideas. So that's an extreme you're talking about. Why do we speak about these groups? Just a point in between. Why do we speak about these groups? The way this benefits us is that although these groups are not in their formal group structure today and have died out and have been dealt with by the ulama over the course of our history, they no longer remain. You might have small pockets somewhere who still consider, might be proud of calling themselves Mu'tazili. And there are actually scholars, there is currently a scholar in, in Los Angeles who considers himself to be a follower of the Mu'tazili ideology of, of rationalism. There are some small groups of people who consider themselves, associate themselves with these. But as a formal group, they no longer remain and have not been around for a long time. The problem is, all of these groups have some adherence of their mode of thinking even today. So you've got people today who would consider the khawarish to be deviant. But they themselves have no problem with making takfir, considering others unbelievers, among, among the believers, considering them unbelievers for sins. Not for you know, misunderstanding of their religion, but for a sin. You know, for, for committing a sin or for not doing enough for a certain cause or whatever, they're willing to label them kafir. In fact, not label, not just label them kafir, but to go out and actually kill them. And you see that around the world. You've got others who give rationality, greater thought, and have their own opinions about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how the deen should be. This is my opinion. This is what they say. So you've got the khawarij. You've got the khawarij on this right. You've got now a whole opposing idea on the other side. This was seemed to be a response to the khawarij. You think that a sin will take you out of Islam. It does not. But they went to such an extreme that they said that good deeds don't even help in getting you to paradise. As long as you're a believer, you're going to be in paradise. As long as you're a believer, basically what they said is that as long as you have belief, then bad deeds do not harm you. As long as you have belief, then bad deeds don't harm you. So where does your salat go and where does that take you in terms of your complacency in your faith, in terms of taking the issues of deen lightheartedly? You know, these are just good things to just show your thanks or whatever. In terms of theological aspect of it, it doesn't really benefit you, they say. You have a lot of people who think like that today. You know, I'm a good person inside. I don't think bad of anybody. I am not harmful to anybody. You know, I don't harbor any jealousy towards anybody. I don't pray and everything. I don't cover or whatever. But this is what's most important. These are called the antinomians or, or the postponers because they put behind them good deeds. Good deeds that don't play a very big part in their lives or in their theology. 
Then you had a number of others. You had the Mujassima, who were just the Mujassima, the anthropomorphists, or the Mushabbiha, the comparers. They were just obsessed with this idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had human-like form. And some said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like this beautiful young person. Looks like a beautiful young person. Some person he says is in this form. Allah is in this place, sitting on His throne, encompassed by it. Allah has a physical hand. He has fingers as He mentions in the hadith. As the Prophet mentions in the hadith. So they were just outright anthropomorphists. Mushabbiha. You had other groups like the Qadariya and the Jabariya. These were either the libertarians or the fatalists. You had the one group who said that the human being doesn't have any free will. So everything that we do, it's like we're being forced to do it and we're driven to do it. Then the question that arises on that is why are we punished for the bad deeds that we do? Why are we rewarded for the good deeds we do if we're actually forced into whatever we're doing? And we have no free will of our own. On the other hand, you had the other group who said, no, of course we have free will. We have free will because otherwise this would be a problem. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this human being, created in him or her the faculty to do these things, and then he let them on their own. So they kind of believe that Allah creates these things, he's the one who gives the power and the ability, and then he lets them do as they will. He doesn't know what they're going to do. They do as they will, and he only finds out afterwards. So according to them, knowledge of this class was only given to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after it actually occurred. La hawla wa la illa billah. Now, the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah tread a very fine line between the two. Because this is an issue which the Prophet ﷺ himself said, don't venture into it because you will not comprehend it. It's inconceivable to the mind. It's, it's incomprehensible to the mind. It's just too deep and beyond our limited capabilities as human beings and a one creation among all of the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't even go into it. We'll discuss that in detail as well. Because there's a certain amount of knowledge that we've been given from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the ulama have discussed it. But in order to understand everything and the subtleties of it, that's impossible. But inshallah, we'll, we'll deal with that as well. So you had the Qadariya and the Jabariya. You had other groups who were not as big, but you had the Jahmiya, who were followers of Jahm ibn Safwan, as Samarkandi. They were Jabariya as well. You have a lot of overlaps as well. Some of these people would be Mu'tazili in certain beliefs, or they would have influenced the Mu'tazilis. Some were Jabariya. Like the Mu'tazila, he rejected the eternal divine attributes. He was the first person to say that the Qur'an was created. He said, paradise and hell are not forever, but they will eventually come to an end as well. Now the thing about the Jahmiya, just to go a bit more in depth about this, you hear this word a lot on the internet. There's people labeling others Jahmiya. They fling this title around quite easily. And that's why Gothari says that unfortunately nowadays, in his time, I'm talking about a hundred years ago, this Jahmiya, you have to be very careful what the exact Jahmiya beliefs were originally. Because today this word is used for any opponent of a person. You know, you have an opponent, you just call him a Jahmiya, it's like a derogatory term. You hear that being used on the internet nowadays as well. You had another group called the Karramiya. This could be traced back to Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Karram, who died in 255 Hijri, which is about 868. 
they were mujassima. Because he declared that his God, because Allah is above and transcendent over what he says, right? So we're saying his God, his belief of God, that he rests on the throne, that he is above as in the physical direction, that he's substantive, and there are physical movements, displacement and dissension for him. Some Karrami also claim that Allah is a body. They further divide into about 12 sects. Even the Mu'tazila had many different sects, the Jubaiya, Nadhamiya, etc., etc. All of these, you see, any deviant group, they're going to very, very easily splinter into many other groups. We've seen that nowadays. Certain groups came up with a big cry and loud noise. They split up into at least two or three groups before they lost all their vigor. That's the way it is, because there's no tested belief that they hold that's tested over time. But it's something that just comes up, it's slogans, and then they suddenly start dividing with the internal differences among them. So you have the Mu'tazilis who went into all of these factions, you have the Karramiya who went into all of these factions, and there's others as well who are of that nature. So the reason, again, as I mentioned, is that there's a lot of these ideas today, and that's why it's important that we know. It also benefits us in the sense that we can learn from this how Islam is so strong. The true monotheism, the true way of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah is so strong that it's withstood the test of time and all of these challenges have been able to subdue all of these challenges and but these challenges continue to come up because shaitan is still around and free and it was never promised to us that the whole of the ummah would have ittifaq on one thing and would have agreement on one thing in fact the one dua of the prophet ﷺ that was not accepted and he mentioned that very clearly was that my ummah never differ among themselves that was not accepted. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ said, the nations before us, they divided into 72 sects. And this nation will divide into one more. 73 sects. This is a hadith related by Tirmidhi. Verily the Bani Israel broke up into 72 factions. My ummah will break up into 73. All of whom will be in the fire except one. The companions asked, who are they? O Messenger of Allah. He replied, those who are on my way and that of my companions. Who are on my sunnah and the sunnah of my companions. The way of my companions. This is a very important hadith. So there's a lot of people who, and rightly, I mean, to a certain degree, when they see this bickering around us and the various different ideologies and the differences of opinion and then the debates and arguments that go on about this, they say, why can't it all be one? Why can't there be an agreement? Of course we have to strive for unity, we have to strive for good relations and a common platform. But at the end of the day, when we see differences, it should not depress us to such a degree that we stop working for the good cause. That's what's important. We have to take it for granted, but at the same time, also not be fatalistic that this is going to happen, let it happen. Fine, you have your own way. But we should try to reconcile. Try to get everybody onto the same platform. But that's a challenge of this world. and Because it's not paradise at the end of the day. It's not paradise. The scholars who have actually studied this hadith and then researched the various groups, some of those which I've mentioned, their subgroups, and they've come up with a listing of the 73 groups. You know, the Shias had this much, and the Mu'tazila had this much, and the Khawarij had this and that and the other. They've done that. But you see, they did this a long time back. Right? Abdul Qahir al-Baghdadi, uh, Shahrastani and others, they did this a long time back. 
And there's new groups coming up all the time. You know, there's a new group right now who are very proud of calling themselves the progressives. There's numerous groups that come out all the time. So what exactly does it mean? Well, you see, the Prophet ﷺ never gave a particular definition of how big, how strong, how much of a membership would each of these groups have. So that's open to interpretation. But obviously, the Prophet ﷺ in his mind had an idea, had a criteria in mind about how big these groups were supposed to be. We don't know that, but we can only speculate. So until the Day of Judgment, our belief is according to this hadith, that there will be 73 groups of a certain criteria, and it will add up to 73. Otherwise, if you actually add up every single group in terms of the various distinctive factors that they have, it goes well beyond a few hundred. Mawlana Khalil Ahmad Sanampuri actually quotes this as well in his Badrul Majhud. That's the unfortunate situation that we have around us. You know, you get questions basically, brother, do you believe in Tawheed? You say, yeah, of course I believe in Tawheed, means the oneness of Allah. No, no, give us a categorization of that. Do you believe in the Tawheed al-Rububiyyah? Do you believe in the Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah? Common person has never heard of this. If you explain to him what it means, that it means, do you believe that your Lord, your Rabb, the one who provides and who sustains you, is only one? Say, of course it is. Yes, in terms of action, people do other things and they think that their work is what provides them and their boss and their employer, their business or you know the dollar or the pound or whatever. But in terms of belief, everybody's going to say, yes, I believe that. Do you believe there's only one entity worthy of worship? Of course, yes. But you know you need to understand it as Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, Tawheed al-Rububiyyah, etc., etc. This categorization. There's nothing wrong with the categorization. But it's not one of those core issues which every Muslim needs to know like Allah is one. They don't need to know this detail. If you ask them and they have the correct belief, that's what's important. But for everybody to kind of have this in rote fashion, that this, 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 that's what's a problem. To insist on that and then to declare people as deviant or kafir when you know, they're not able to remember this or to take this on in the way that people want them to take it on. Where is Allah? That's a question that's asked to so many. Some of you may be asked that question. The normal answer, which is not the correct answer, just to mention, they say Allah is everywhere. And immediately, is Allah in this cup? Is Allah in the toilet? And this person just reels back and says like, you know, he's not able to reconcile immediately what he's saying and what's being said. And then immediately, brother, you have to believe that Allah is over the throne. Allah is on the throne. Allah is above. We'll discuss all of this in detail. Because to say Allah is everywhere just like that, it does insinuate this idea of pantheism of Allah inhabiting each object in this strange way. We don't want to go into that right now because we don't want to leave it premature, but these are some of the questions that arise today. And that's why it becomes important to, to study these things, to know what is the way of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. This is where this word Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah came from. You know, this word Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah was not there at the time of the Prophet in that sense or used in that sense. The Prophet mentioned it in this hadith. This hadith of Tirmidhi which I just quoted to you, when they asked him that which one will be the Najia, the group that will be saved, he said, those who are on my way and that of my companions. Ahl-Sunnah, the people of the Sunnah, the people of the way of the Prophet Wal-Jama'ah. Jama'ah, means the group, the group of companions, primarily. And then the mainstream Muslim of every generation after that. So the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah became the dominant name to describe the mainstream Muslims 
those who are on the way of the Sunnah and of the Sahaba away from the sectarians who had these various different divergent ideas off to the side. That's where the word Ahlul Sunnah Jama'ah came from. The people of the Sunnah and community. The people of the Sunnah and group. You know, there's various different translations. There's no official one translation. Okay, quickly before we finish this first session, just to introduce the book and the author, the work that we'll be studying, it's called The Creed of Imam Tahawi Al-Aqidah Al-Tahawiyah, Bayanu Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. The real name of it is Bayanu Sunnati Wal Jama'ah. Exposition of the Sunnah and the group. So basically the creed of this Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah, the mainstream Muslims. It's famously known as Al-Aqidah Tahawiyah or Aqidah Tahawiyah. Aqidah Tahawiyah Al-Aqidah Lit-Tahawi or it's Tahawi's composition of the main beliefs of the Muslim. The great thing about this book is that it's actually, despite being so short, it's very comprehensive. According to the scholars, there's hardly any core important points of the Muslim belief that are absent from this. Imam Tahawi has been able to encompass all of the important points that a Muslim needs to believe in and beyond that, either in detail or he's alluded to them, he's indicated them. So he's touched on everything. Some things he actually explains in depth because of maybe a particular need of the time. And there's something that he alludes to. It's more popular than the work by Imam Abu Hanifa called Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. Though he says in the beginning that this is an exposition based on that of Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad rahimahumullah. So he benefited from what came down and what reached him from Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, but his work became more popular. In fact, it's so popular that nearly all the groups today use it. There are some groups... Some means one or more. All right, the word some in English means one or more. So some doesn't have to, most common, uh, commonly thought to mean more than one. So it doesn't have to mean that. Some groups use it, take it on wholeheartedly. They just reinterpret one of the two of the points in there. Little footnote at the bottom. Right? Everybody else, they take it the way it is. They explain it. The other thing about this book, it's so popular, so small yet so comprehensive. But the other point that I find fascinating about this book, you can study it in about an hour, or you could take two years or more to study it. Because if you just want to read through, it's so simple that it shouldn't bother you. Any particular point shouldn't bother you, and shouldn't make you more curious for a person who just wants to read and just get the basic idea. Very simple, very lucid, just beautifully composed. But at the same time, for those who want to open it up, and the commentaries that have been written, then it can take a year or two years or even more to go into the depth and understand that. Some of the popular commentaries, right off if, if somebody understands Arabic and they want to benefit more from this, they'll take on the commentary of Maidani. Maidani's commentary is, I believe, really nice. It's not that deep. There are some points which he takes from the Musayr of Ibn al-Humam. You can ignore those. It's just hair-splitting debates. Very, very difficult and complex. But other than that, just a very beautiful commentary. You know, published by Darul Fikr and others have published it as well. Another one is Babarti Sharh. It's not as popular, but it's around. Another one is Ghaznawi's Sharh, Ghaznawi's commentary, which is really nice because everything he puts in a Quranic verse. So nearly every point he brings a Quranic verse that it's taken from. So for those who want to just relate it back to the Quran, that's a very good Sharh. 
It doesn't go into any in-depth topics. And it was, I think, published maybe a few hundred years ago in Qazan in Russia or some other places. But today we have a manuscript copy of it. It's going to be published soon, inshallah. One of the best sharh, best commentaries they say for this book in Arabic is by Qunawi. It's a Maturidi commentary. Again, it's not published, it's not available today. That's being worked on. But the commentary is quoted by Mullah Ali Al-Qadi and others in all the other books. It's supposed to be a very good commentary. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to see a copy of it yet. There's a very popular, widespread commentary of this book that we need to speak about. It's the commentary published, unfortunately, by one of the Hanafi publishing houses of Karachi, seeing the Hanafi name of the author, who was supposedly Hanafi in his furu'. Furu' means in the branches of in jurisprudence, in fiqh, he was Hanafi. But in Aqidah, he was on the Aqidah of Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, and unfortunately problematic in that regard. It was published because of the Hanafi name and it just became very widespread. There's a lot of problems in there which I've alluded to as well in uh, the translation of Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. There will be some issues which we we may bring up in the course of this study as well. The problem in it is that it leans towards crypto-anthropomorphism in some issues. And a lot of the time there's uh, quotes in there without naming Ibn Taymiyyah from him. Which Albani is actually the editor of the book. Albani, rahimahullah now, he edited this work. And in one place he had to actually criticize Ibn Abil Iz, saying, who said that this particular opinion about hell coming to an end, which was Ibn Taymiyyah's opinion. Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, an opinion that's ascribed to him is that of hell finally coming to an end one day. That's against the Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah. Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah say that it's forever. Khalidina fiha abada. So, Ibn Abil Iz tries to support this opinion by saying many of the Salaf had this opinion as well. Or more than one Salaf had this opinion. Albani actually really gets down on this and says this is a misquote, this is not from anybody. This book obviously is the authorship of Imam Tahawi. Just a brief account of his life because mashallah there's lots of things written on him you'll find. But Imam Tahawi was born in a place called Taha which is in Egypt. Many of the great scholars actually came from Egypt. Egypt was a center of learning later on. Like Suyuti is from Asyut. And Imam Shafi actually is buried there. He moved to Egypt as well. Taha is in Upper Egypt. He was born in 239, some say 230, but 239, which is about 855 according to the Gregorian calendar. What is it, about 1200 years ago? Abu Ja'far was his title, Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi. He died in 321, which is 933. He came from a, a background of learning and piety. He became a great muhaddith. He's, a, he's considered a great muhaddith, having authored a number of works on hadith, like Mushkil al-Athar and Ma'an al-Athar, Sharh Ma'an al-Athar, which I actually taught in the madaris today. He started off as a shafi'i. His uncle Muzani was a shafi'i. And he became a Hanafi afterwards. There's a number of stories related as to how he became a Hanafi. One story that's related is that he just couldn't understand a particular issue his uncle was explaining to him. Over and over again, his uncle was very patient. Over and over again, he explained it to him in very different ways. He just couldn't get it at that time. His uncle became a bit uh, frustrated, it's, it's reported. And he said, that, Wallahi, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never be anything. He left his uncle and he went and became a Hanafi and started studying those books. Others say that he saw his uncle always looking into Hanafi books to benefit from them. That's why he went over to the Hanafi side, but he's considered one of the greatest of the Hanafi scholars, and Ibn Abidin, his Rasmul Mufti, has actually considered him to be of the third tier 
of scholars in the Hanafi ranking system of uh, fiqh and jurisprudence. Of the eight, there's eight degrees, he's on the third degree at the top, so that's quite high ranking. Because uh, Abu Hanifa, and that is on the first, Rahimahullah, Imam, some would put Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad in the first or second. So it's, it's quite high. A great scholar wrote a number of different works, and you can see his piety come through. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given acceptance to his work today, that we're studying this work, and this work is studied Throughout the world, he's got this acceptance. People gain a knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through it. And thus, all the reward of that, may Allah bless him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to benefit from this work. This was an introduction, a background, why we're studying what we're studying, the need of it, and what we're studying. We will start the book, inshallah. We're going to try to cover about half of the book. About 60-something points is about 130 in these two days. We're going to give a lot of time for questioning inshallah. I didn't think there was much of a need for questions on the introduction because it's more of a narrative, it's more of a description. There may be questions if you do, feel free to you know, send them forward. Please, feel free to send as many questions as you want, serious ones, on the topic. And we'll try to take them inshallah. The reason we made it over two sessions, i.e. two weekends, is because it's a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic. It's not like we're detailing the way of salat, which is going to have a practical aspect to it, where you can go out of here after two days of in-depth study and you know at least resort back to some things. This is a very important subject. What happens is that some of these things are going to be very heavy and complex, extremely heavy and complex. And if we try to cram all of the various different important points in into two days, we don't have enough time to digest them. That's why we do it over the course of two sessions so that by the end of this, we would have covered maybe three of the main aspects. Throughout the whole book, there's probably about five to six in-depth discussions that are important, like the issue of taqdeer or destiny, you know, the issue of the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the issue of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in particular, you know, things like that. Each of them needs some time. Right? Does Iman increase or decrease? These are some of the more important points. The rest of it is just to reiterate what we already know, inshallah, and to put it in perspective, to see the limits of how far we can take things and how we need to understand things. Jazakumullah khair, inshallah, we'll see you for the next session.